Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. We are nearing the end uh, in our journey through Mark. I appreciated what Pastor Greco shared in his Lord's Day email that you should have received yesterday. Um, and, and when he pointed out that the texts, as we progress through Mark, the texts grow in importance. And I feel the weight of this text um, as we consider Christ's crucifixion, his death, and his burial. What a blessing it is to have God's Word. And in many ways, we could say that this text here in the closing verses of Mark 15 is the pinnacle of the gospel story, Christ's crucifixion. We have seen uh, previously, we also uh, considered kind of part one of the crucifixion last time. We saw how that Jesus was on the road to Golgotha. He stumbled under the weight of the cross. He was weakened by the loss of blood from the scourging, and they compelled a, a passerby, Scripture tells us, Simon of Cyrene, a man just coming in from the country. Um, and uh, in God's providence, he was compelled to carry the cross of the Lord Jesus. And we see Christ already um, in the previous text placed upon the cross. He was there. He was bearing shame and scoffing rude, as the song says, that he was mocked by those around him, by those that passed by, by the chief priests and scribes, and even by those crucified with him. I've chosen for our text, or for our title here, Christ was crucified dead and was buried. Those are words from the Apostles' Creed. Um, those, that creed, of course, is, is kind of the distillation of what we believe about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and what, um, the, what God has done to redeem a people for himself. And that creed in very succinct phrases gives us the very basics of our Christian faith. And these three verbs in, in the title um, are all from the text and vital to our understanding of the Lord Jesus. And let me just remind you of questions that I have kind of put out there before you as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark. Mark answers these questions in various ways throughout his Gospel. He says, who is Jesus Christ? What has he done? And what does it mean to follow him? And we see all of those things here in this text. We see that in the words of the centurion, a Gentile cannot help but explain who Jesus was, where he says, truly this man was the Son of God. What did Jesus come to do? Well, we see him doing it. We see him, Jesus, on the cross, accomplishing the work that he came to do. And what does it mean to follow him? Well, in the final verses of this chapter, we see a, a courageous example of what it means to follow Jesus. Our text this evening picks up as Jesus is on the cross, Verse 25 has told us that he was crucified at the third hour, which is 9 a.m., and now it is the sixth hour, or noon. So let us pray and let us read God's word from Mark uh, 15. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are unworthy of your favor and grace, and were it not for Christ's death, Lord, we would be hopelessly lost. We would be headed for hell, justly deserving of your wrath and displeasure. But Lord Jesus, you provided a way of salvation. Show us Jesus Christ in the gospel tonight, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Mark 15, beginning with verse 33. 
And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. As we noted, Christ was placed upon the cross in the previous section. We saw that in verse 24. And we've already considered the events of the previous verses. But here we pick up as Christ is upon the cross and in the final moments of his life. And it's interesting what Mark wants to point out to us about those final moments. And in his death, and, and let me just mention that, that really the, the title of, our, of the sermon provides the outline for the same, that, that he was crucified, that he died, and that he was buried. And under that first point, that Jesus was crucified, we see two things that happen in those final moments that Mark points to us. The first is the darkness, and the second is the dereliction, or the cry of abandonment from our Lord. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this darkness that fell upon the land from noon to 3 p.m. The time of day when the sun is at its greatest strength was the time in which darkness fell over the land as Jesus hung upon the cross. I can't tell you for sure if it was as pitch black as it would be on a moonless night in the middle of the desert. I can't tell you, I, can't, I won't try to explain this. Some have said, well, this might have been a solar eclipse. Maybe it was a sandstorm, a dust storm, or something that obscured the sun. God caused this. We don't need to really question what it was or try to explain it by natural means. We see in it that God was was saying something, and Mark, for whatever reason, chooses to include it in his gospel and, and the other 
uh, synoptic gospels of Matthew and Luke do as well. We know from other places in Scripture that, that darkness represents lament, and typically it presents God's judgment. Remember, it was darkness which was the ninth plague before the, the taking of the firstborn. It was, it was in a sense, the, 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 the foreboding uh, precursor to the, the death of the firstborn there in Egypt. And here, God is showing his wrath and judgment upon sin, not the sins committed by the Lord Jesus, of course, as he hung upon the cross, but the sins that were being laid upon Christ. And just as the darkness covered the land of Egypt before the death of the firstborn, here the darkness gathers as the Lord Jesus, God's only begotten Son, is near His death, bearing the sins of His people. And we see not only this darkness, but we hear the cry of dereliction. The cry from our Lord Jesus that says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark once again gives us a time marker for, for that event and for that cry from our Lord Jesus. The darkness has been upon the land and upon Christ as he's upon the cross for three hours. And Jesus cries out in these words and he's quoting directly from Psalm 22 verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark gives us the untranslated Aramaic, and then he gives us the interpretation of that. And our translators in the English versions help to preserve that as they give us those Aramaic words that sound so strange to us. But Mark probably heard those ringing in his ear as he thought about it. These words were first penned by the psalmist, by David, in Psalm 22, in his moments of desperation and forsakenness. David cries out to the Lord, and is, as is often David's pattern, we quickly see him returning to a place of faith where he is reflecting upon God's glory and his holiness, and, and, and he is, in a sense, contenting himself in God's goodness and his protection for him. However, our Lord only uses these words of forsakenness, these words of abandon, of dereliction. So what does it mean that Jesus was forsaken? Well, this is the only time that our Lord addressed His, his Father in this way. His pattern and His instruction, as you uh, hopefully remember from um, His instruction of the Lord, what we call the Lord's Prayer. We could maybe better call it the Disciples' Prayer when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And He said, pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven. And He prayed to His Father. But here upon the cross, He does not address God as His Father. He addresses Him as my God. Why is that? Does this mean that the Trinity was torn apart? Some would say that. I, I tell you, no, that is not what I am saying. That is not what Scripture says. The Lord our God is one. The Father and the Son are of one essence. So what happened in this moment? Well, we have to realize that we serve a holy God. One who is perfect in holiness and righteousness. One whom we heard from the words of Habakkuk this morning. He is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. 
That's the God we serve. God and sin do not mix. Because God is just. He can only respond to sin with righteous and just anger and wrath. As one author has written, God is terrifyingly just. And sin is not just a little mess up, a casual mistake, or somehow living short of the best version of ourselves as some might like us to believe. Sin is a violation of the laws that God, our Creator, has given to us. And when the Bible talks about God's reaction to sin, it uses vivid and sometimes revolting metaphors. John Stott points out five pictures in the Bible that illustrate the utter, utter incompatibility of divine holiness and human sin. And they are these, height and distance, light, fire, and vomiting. All say that God cannot be in the presence of sin and that if it approaches him too closely, it is repudiated or consumed. Think of the Old Testament. Think of in the, in the days of the, of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness when they were caught in sin. Often, sometimes the ground would, would swallow them up. Sometimes fire would come upon them. We see a God that very much cares about sin. And that is the God of all time. Not just the God of the Old Testament. He is a God that is holy and righteous and just. So what does that matter for our text this morning or this evening? Well, it is because that is the Holy God that was the Father of the Son who hung upon the cross bearing all the sins of all of His people. And it is because that He was forsaken in that moment as He took upon Himself all of our sins, your sins, my sins, the sins of all of His people. And that is the fundamental beginning of the gospel is that we are sinners and that Christ died for our sins as we are told in 1 Corinthians 15.3. 1 Peter 2.24 states it another way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And a scripture I trust that that if you've not memorized, you will, is 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God loves the Son. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have existed forever in perfect harmony. And we can't say that, that God stopped loving Jesus at that moment, yet Jesus was bearing the sins of his people. And in that moment, the weight of those sins clouded God's love for the Son. Jesus felt the full burden of the wrath of a holy God against sin. As Calvin wrote, Jesus bore the weight of divine severity since he was stricken and afflicted by God's hand and experienced all the signs of a wrathful and avenging God. Jesus cries out in forsakenness, in abandonment as he bears our sins. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be made righteous. Secondly, we see Jesus died. Jesus really did indeed die. His heart stopped. 
His lungs stopped breathing. His blood stopped flowing. His brain ceased activity. And we read in our text that he died relatively quickly. Sometimes uh, criminals would, would, would live for hours and, and sometimes even days upon the cross. But Jesus died relatively quickly. And in the moment of his death, the author of, of, of Mark, Mark um, gives us three things. Um, and, and admittedly, the Gospels are selective in, in what they tell us. And, but we want to look at the text and we want to understand what Mark is telling us because that's where we're at. He talks about the cry, another cry from the Lord Jesus. He talks about the curtain and he talks about the centurion. What is the cry? We see that in um, Jesus, verse 37, that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Well, we... It, it only stands to reason that there were probably many cries of pain and from, from other criminals, I shouldn't say other criminals from, because Christ was not a criminal, but from criminals that died up on the cross, probably many curses mingled with those cries. And, and likely Jesus did emit sounds. And so we really don't, Mark doesn't tell us what this cry was that Jesus uttered right before he died. But if we read the Gospel of John, we see that right before Jesus died, he said those words that, that should stick in our minds forever. Those words, it is finished. And then Mark says that he breathed his last, whatever that cry was. John says that he gave up his spirit, meaning the same thing. What we see here, what Mark shows us here, is that Jesus was conscious to the end. He, he did not fall into a, a state of, of unconsciousness as many of the, the criminals that suffered upon a cross would do. But all the way to the end, he was in control. Jesus gave his life. They did not take it from him. And in that phrase that, that John records for us, and, and I think we are safe to assume that this is likely what it was because we are given the sayings upon the cross and and, and they're not all recorded in all of the Gospels. And, and like I said, the Gospel accounts are, are selective in what they give us. But certainly, Christ's life was finished, but His mission was finished as well. He, his mission was accomplished. We, we think of Him upon the cross, and, and likely the darkness cleared in the moment of His death, that light returned and His Spirit was received by the Father. Life had left the Lord Jesus, but new life has dawned for you and for me in His death. Secondly, Mark tells us about the curtain. And Mark tells us this very matter-of-factly without any comment, but it is interesting to note that he says it, is, that it was torn in two from the top to the bottom. It was not a work of man. It was not something that that was orchestrated by mankind, but it was a work of God. The veil was torn in two. And of course, this shows us that the way is open. If we look at the, um, at the account of the Day of Atonement from Leviticus 16, 
We know that God is a holy God and, and gave very particular instructions to his people about how he was to be worshipped and how sins could be atoned. Leviticus 16 says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. It's interesting, as he gives the instructions for the Day of Atonement, he remembers that and he points to that. Remember that they had offered strange fire, that they had displeased the Lord in their worship. And he is saying that after the death of Aaron's two sons for their mistake and their sin and their, their false worship, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And we see the instructions. He goes on there in Leviticus 16 and lays out how he is to approach the holiest of holies. The holy place where God's presence, the ultimate presence of, of where God dwells. And he is to take incense in there. And so, so even the mercy seat, which was the place of kind of the central place of God's presence, even that is to be shrouded in a cloud from the incense. And what is happening here in the, in the death of Christ? That way is being opened as we we heard in the, in the opening verse at the beginning of the service from Hebrews 10, 19, where he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He has opened the way into the presence of God by His death, by His accomplished work. And we have access to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We see also in the moment of Christ's death what happened to the centurion and this bold proclamation that he speaks in verse 39. It says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Mark tells us that the centurion saw something. He saw that in this way he breathed his last. And we have to wonder, what did the centurion see? What did he see in the Lord Jesus as he hung up on the cross in, in shame, in nakedness, as, as he was mocked by others? What did the centurion see? Well, we have to think about what Jesus was doing in that, in that moment. He, he certainly was suffering physically. He was certainly suffering from the pain and the agony and the asphyxiation of, of what it meant to die upon a cross. But he was also, as we have said, bearing the sins of his people. I can't imagine what the Lord Jesus might have looked like upon the cross. As this centurion who was, who was really a low-ranking officer, who was in charge of the soldiers, who actually drove the nails into the hands and feet of our Lord. He was there. He saw it all. What did he see? What did he see in the Lord? Well, he certainly saw the suffering the pain he, he saw and perhaps even, in a sense, felt the darkness that fell upon the land in that hour. 
he somehow probably saw the weight of sin that Jesus was bearing. There was something there beyond a normal crucifixion, if you could use that word, even in relation to such a, such a gruesome death. He saw, no doubt he saw resolve. He saw determination. He saw, he saw the Lord Jesus set upon what he came to do. He saw the Lord Jesus completing the work. He heard the words, it is finished. And he knew that something was different about this man. He perhaps somehow felt the loss and abandonment as the, uh, the Lord Jesus as the Son of God. We have seen that, that the Lord Jesus proclaimed himself as uh, to, to the Sanhedrin there in his trial, or maybe we could say his mock trial, when, when out of frustration the chief priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And he boldly proclaims there that he is the Messiah, the one who will come in judgments, coming with the cloud of heaven. That claim, of course, was considered blasphemy by the Jewish leader. But here, here a Gentile makes that bold claim that this man truly was the Son of God. What a bold claim that was. As Jesus died, as his, as his last breath left him, as his heart stopped, here a Gentile seems to be brought into the fold, into the fold of believers. Finally, we see our Lord Jesus is buried. Jesus really died and really was buried. And as we look at this third point, we see two things that, that Mark brings to our attention. Two individuals or groups thereof, the faithful women and the courageous disciple in jo Joseph of Arimathea. We see the women looking on from a distance. Now, typically we would see if we saw someone following Jesus at a distance, we would wonder of their commitment, but this was a unique situation in which our Lord Jesus was suffering, and they probably weren't even welcome to be close to the Lord, but they were there. They were looking on. They were, they were wanting to know what happened to their Lord Jesus. Mary Magdalene was there. Jesus she was the one from whom Jesus had cast seven demons, we read in Luke 8. We see also Mary, the mother of James the Younger and Joseph, and those were names of Christ's siblings, and so maybe this was the Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus. We don't really know. And this woman, Salome, which, which Mark doesn't really tell us who, who she was. Some have said perhaps she's James and John's mother, but they were faithful, they were grateful, they followed Jesus, they were concerned. And, they, and, and we see later, they, they wanted to know what happened to Jesus and, and what is to come of his body. And then we see the courageous disciple, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. And we see here that he was a respected member of the council, and he himself was looking for the kingdom of God. I wish I could talk to him. I wish I could know what he was experiencing as a member of the Sanhedrin. Those who had been on Jesus' path and, and hunting him down like hounds, trying to find a way to trip him up to kill him. He was among them. And yet Luke tells us in, in chapter 23, verse 51, that, that he had not consented to their decision and action. And he restates what Mark has told us, that he was looking for the kingdom of God. So he was, 
He was looking for Christ. He was looking for the, the revelation of the Son of God. He was looking for the Messiah. And it says in verse 43 that he took courage and went to Pilate. Joseph risked really everything. He, he, was, he was a follower, and, and he seems to understand in, in some way, although probably clouded, what Jesus was doing in that moment. And he wanted to honor the Lord Jesus. He wanted to, to honor him even in his death. And so he took courage, and he went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And Mark gives us details of, of Pilate's surprise at, uh, in the moment that that. Jesus had already died. He inquires of the centurion who, who, who says, yes, indeed, he has. And, and then we see Joseph and, and, and perhaps others with him taking the Lord Jesus down. And hastily, because it's near the end of the day of preparation on Friday evening before the Sabbath on Saturday, and he is, he is hurrying to accomplish this before sundown. Um, it's likely that that they were not able to anoint the body with spices, and, and it seems that, that we'll, we'll see that in the next text when, when we see the, um, the ladies, the women come to anoint the, the Lord Jesus. So, so here we see this faithful follower who probably was still wrestling with what it meant to follow Jesus. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, for Joseph, it meant risking everything. It meant risking his reputation, his status as a member of this respected ruling class, the Sanhedrin. It meant forsaking perhaps even, even the fortunes that come with that. So let me ask you, what does it mean for you to follow the Lord Jesus? Are you ready to forsake all and follow Him? Do you see in His death that it was a sacrificial death not just a good example of a good man that would die for a friend, but it was a death that took upon himself the sins of all of his people. Do you see that? Do you rejoice in that? In which he bore in his body the sins, your sins, upon the tree. So let me ask you, are you ready to surrender to him as your Lord and Savior? Let us pray.